if you take out your Bibles and open them to Mark chapter 5, you don't have a Bible, there should be a red one sitting in the pew in front of you, and we welcome you to take and use that. I will always remember John and Ryan. They were sophomores in high school when I met them, and I was their Young Life leader. If you're not familiar with Young Life, it is a parachurch ministry that does outreach to high school kids. I spent four years working for Young Life, four years on a high school campus, building relationships and seeking out students. As a church, we support Young Life both locally here in Fargo-Moorhead, as well as Kevin and Sarah Eastway, who do Young Life in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It is a phenomenal ministry reaching the unchurched youth all over the world. And I will always remember John and Ryan because, well, they were memorable. They were loud and funny, and they were definitely troublemakers. And when I met them, we immediately connected. And it wasn't too long before they started coming to our weekly Young Life meeting, and I started to get them to know them better and better. And it wasn't too long after that that they signed up to go to Young Life camp. And they helped some other kids sign up too. And to say the least, I was really excited because I didn't think either of these guys were believers. And though we had professed the gospel to them, there's just something unique about taking students to camp where they're confronted with the gospel for a whole week. They're forced to really think about it. And I knew in my heart that God was up to something. A couple of weeks after they signed up, I got a phone call from an older gentleman that I didn't know. He called to inquire as to whether or not I was in my office that day, and I was. About two hours later, two men showed up at my office, including the man who called. And they came to explain to me that John and Ryan's families went to their church. That They knew John and Ryan. And they knew the kind of kids that John and Ryan were. And that under no certain terms should I take them to camp with me. I was taken back. In years of working with and around Young Life, it had never happened to me before. And to be fair, in years since, I've never heard of it happening again. So I began to inquire why. And this is the heartbreaking part. It still ruins me. These two men sat in my office and told me that Giant and Ryan had lost the right to hear the gospel. That they were too far gone that they didn't deserve a chance. Now I've held on to that. I've held on to that moment because it wasn't they shouldn't go to camp. It wasn't that they shouldn't be involved. It was that they had lost the right to hear the gospel. Now I heard their stories. I heard everything they had to share And without question, these two young men had caused plenty of trouble in their life. But to lose the right to hear the gospel? Beloved, I want to submit to you, that category does not exist. And this morning as we step into Mark chapter 5, we'll see a man who many would have put in that category. A man who was out there. A man who'd been removed from society, a man who was an outcast, and in many ways about as far of an extreme situation as we can imagine. And in fact, it is the extreme nature of this scenario that makes the point of the message so profound. 
So it's my hope that as we step into the gospel this morning, as we look at this story, this encounter with Jesus, that we'll see something. And we'll see something real that we need to apply to our own hearts and we need to apply to our lives. So as we turn to the scriptures, let's take a moment to go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your understanding. Father, we need you to open up our eyes. Father, we need you to help us to see Jesus as he was, not as we've thought about it, not as we've perceived it. Father, the evil one is at work convincing us of lies about Jesus. And Father, you've told us that your word is inspired. You've told us that it it comes from you, that you have breathed it out. You've told us that your word is useful for teaching and useful for rebuking, useful for correcting, useful for being trained in righteousness so that we would be equipped for every good work. Father, we pray this morning that you would use your word in us today according to your purposes, according to our own hearts and our own understanding and our own lives. Father, that you would mold us and shape us and make us more attentive to the real love that Jesus has for us. And Father, I pray that you would grant me clarity to declare these excellent truths. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This morning as we open up Mark chapter 5, we need to remember that Mark chapter 5, like almost every other chapter in the Bible, is not a standalone thought. As if Jesus passed down individual standalone lessons like a movie, you don't have to see all the others, just watch this and you'll get it. Mark 5 comes in the middle of the Gospel of Mark. Fittingly, it comes after Mark 3 and 4. And so if you're holding the timeline given by the Gospel of Mark together, if you're seeing it in context, you need to pick up that chapters 3 and 4 may very well have been one day, possibly at most two. Nobody academically thinks this is more than two days, which is to say that the events of chapters 3 and 4 are significant to chapter 5 because it's all in that same time period. It it tells us where the disciples are. It tells us what they're thinking about. It tells us kind of their emotional state. As in it is one day that Jesus calls his disciples to be with them. And calls them that he might send them out to preach and cast out demons. And then later that day he teaches them further. Showing them exactly what he'd mean so that they would understand what it is to be his follower, what it means to do what he does, what it means to say what he says, what it means to live like he lives. And beloved, we need to heed these examples all through the gospels, because if we're not careful, we'll lean into the narrative of Christianity of the world and not the narrative of Christianity in the Bible. Because Christianity in the world is trying to convince you right now that following Jesus is about your happiness, it's about your self-confidence, it's about your security, it's about your health or your wealth or any number of other things 
that you'd find in the average Christian living section of a bookstore. But that's not what the Bible says. Following Jesus is about following Jesus. And that's what we see in the Gospels. That's what we see here in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus teaching his disciples and then modeling for them exactly what he's trying to get them to do. So, for example, he says he's going to send them out to preach. And then he teaches them about sowing seed. Sowing seed so generously that it would get in the weeds. Sowing so generously that it would get in the rocking places. So generously that it would get in the path. He's taking them through these lessons that they would understand. And he's sending them out to cast out demons. That's going to be important this morning. These lessons would have been so fresh to the disciples who get on a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee. And I I can't tell you this with any authority, but you have to imagine, these are the conversations that they're having over meals when they put their head on a rock and they're trying to go to sleep. This is what they're talking about. Do you think he really meant? I mean, he seemed serious. I mean, this is what they're processing as they go through all this. And so when the storm comes on, only for Jesus to calm the storm, only for Jesus to reveal his power over the physical, only for Jesus to show his power is worth more than their fear, he's setting them all up. He's training them. He's walking them through the Christian life. And so friends, when we come to chapter 5, they're fresh off being taught. They're fresh off being challenged. And so when it says in Mark 5, verse 1, when they came to the other side of the sea, we're to understand they've been on a journey. Not just across the water. That Jesus has been taking them places. He's telling them what they need to be about. He's telling them what they need to be thinking about. So let's look at it. Mark 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Jesus and the disciples, and there may well have been other boats, Mark tells us that, moved from the northwest side, I always have to orient myself, the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee to the east side, to what Mark calls the country of the Gerasenes. Friends, we need to remember, we have to keep this at the forefront of our thinking as we wander through this. That it was Jesus' idea that they crossed the Sea of Galilee. It was Jesus' idea that they come to the country of the Gerasenes. So it's not an accident what happens here. It's not an accident they land where they land. It's not an accident who they run into. We need to see this in the context of Jesus training his disciples and Jesus training you and me. Verse 2. And when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there he met, he met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. Jesus steps out of the boat, runs into a man. Text says he's got an unclean spirit. Now, as Mark continues to describe him, I want you for a moment to think about this. I want you in your mind to picture this man. 
I want you thinking about what this man would look like. I'd want you to think about it as if you're there. I want you to picture the scene that Mark is trying to paint for you. Verse 3. He lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore. Not even with a chain. For he'd often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wretched the chains apart. He broke the shackles into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. Do you have a picture? This man is so broken. This man is so desperate that he's been removed from society. He's living amongst the tombs. If it's helpful, you could picture him in a cemetery, crawling in a hole. Likely he's sleeping in a cave. But the worst part isn't his physical situation. You have to consider the mental, the psychological. Apparently, people regularly come to bind him. Why? Because he seemed to be a problem. He's either going to hurt himself or he's going to hurt other people. They come to bind him. They come to tame him. Tame him. And yet when he's chained up, he's able to break out. It doesn't work. Nobody can hold him back. And perhaps the most vivid picture is that he's always crying out, always cutting himself. Luke records the same story, so does Matthew, by the way. But in Luke 8, it adds another detail. That he was naked. So it, it paints this image for us. When we think about this large, hulking man, what's your reaction? Is this somebody you would approach? Is this somebody you would have compassion on? Is this somebody that you think, hey, that brother needs Jesus? Or that brother needs love? Or that brother needs some attention? He probably needs some affection. He needs something. Beloved, if we're honest, we're terrified of that guy. We're running the other way. We're shielding our kids' eyes like, no, 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 no. Let's keep moving. There's nothing about this situation that in our flesh we're going, we should lean into this. And the thing is, my guess is the disciples' reaction was far closer to yours and mine. My guess is the disciples are like, did we land in the wrong spot? Jesus, there's got to be something else than, than this. But it isn't his reaction. It isn't his reaction at all. Verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he fell, he ran and fell down before him. The man comes straight to Jesus. We'll find Jesus has been talking to him. Mark's discussion of this could be a little clearer for us to read, but it is what we've got. Verse 7. And crying out with a loud voice, he said... What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. 
For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Which is to say, from the time Jesus has arrived, Jesus is commanding to this man, seeing, understand the situation, having compassion, seeing it for what it is. Jesus is saying, come out of the man. This man was demon-possessed. The very mission the disciples had been given, right? They were given the authority to cast out demons. Day and a half later, to cast out a demon. Is this what you would have imagined? Wouldn't be what they would have imagined. I can't fathom that. They'd seen it. Jesus had sent them to preach and to cast out demons. And here they are with this man. And I want you to see the connection. Because Jesus is training his disciples. He's training us. And we're going to unpack that a bit in a moment. But we should at least for a second talk about demon possession. Now I've got to be honest with you. There are about a hundred rabbit trails in this passage we could chase. And we're not going to. And one of the reasons we're not is because sometimes we have this problem of we like the rabbit trails more than the truth. And we might miss the passage to figure out what all these little things mean. But we do need to at least acknowledge demon possession. It's when a demon, a fallen angel, indwells a human, takes possession of him literally or her. Probably sounds like something out of a bad movie to most of us. But I assure you, it's very real. And it was clearly a common occurrence in the first century. You see it mentioned, you see it referred to over and over and over again in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. And yet in our culture, in our context, it's so, so very rare. And so it seems removed from us. We don't tend to think about demon possession because it's not before us. So the fastest and the simplest explanation I can give you of why is that Satan has a large bag of tricks and tools. And in our culture, this is not one he employs often. This is a full frontal attack. It's not his, it's not his approach in wealthy America. It's not his approach in the West. You just don't see it. You want to have longer conversations? We can have longer conversations. You want more to read about it? I can give you more to read about it. But that's about as far into that as we want to move this morning. But should you wonder why you haven't seen it, doesn't happen here a lot. Verse 9. Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. This man is not possessed by a demon. This man is possessed by many demons, such that he identifies as legion. At that time, the word legion would have been synonymous with the Roman army, in which a legion was 6,000 men. What it does for us is it starts to show us this man's spiritual condition. It wasn't lost He was really lost. He didn't have baggage. He had a whole lot of baggage. He had a whole lot of extraordinary, serious, 
spiritual baggage, this brother is in really, really bad shape. And while his outward condition might seem bad, his inward condition was far worse. And yet, Jesus. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now again, there's much we could say here. We could talk about the value of pigs. We could talk about why Jesus lets this happen. But we're trying not to be sidetracked. To handle it quickly, the demons were bound for destruction. According to the Scriptures, they're always bound for destruction. I don't believe Jesus allowed them to go into the pigs for their convenience. I believe he did it for their destruction. And the freedom of the man was worth it. Now again, there's plenty there. I don't want us to get sidetracked. Because the story continues. Now we've got to pay attention to the responses. The herdsmen, the sheep herders, fled. And told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. These are the people who knew the area, right? These are the people who knew that there used to be 2,000 pigs here. These are the people maybe who'd come and, and bound the man before. These are the people who'd come and hoping maybe to be compassionate and only to be turned away. These are people who maybe have known this guy. They want to see what's happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the man who had the legion sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. First, you have to ask yourself, what's your reaction to this demon-possessed man? The second reaction you have to think about is, what's your reaction now? What would your response to this be? Fear would be normal. But seeing this man sitting there wearing clothes in his right mind, I mean, that's got to be something. I mean, the number of places you read in the New Testament where Jesus heals and all of a sudden crowds flock because they want this healing, we should at least be aware that the Gerasenes on the east side is in the Gentile part of the country, that there weren't a lot of believers here. So they probably are just afraid. They have no belief. They're not leaning that way. So their reaction, we see, starting in 17, and they begin to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends And tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. That note is your first missionary. Beloved, Jesus came to the country of the Gerasenes to set this man free, to heal him. Jesus wanted his disciples 
to witness this. Jesus wanted his disciples to teach. He wanted to teach them. He wanted to show them his power. He wanted to show them his compassion. Beloved, they'd been tasked with sowing seed amongst the good soil, the weeds, the rocky places, and the pathway. And this story seems extreme. And it is. What it does is it starts to help make the point that perhaps this is exactly why Jesus took them to the country of the Gerasenes. So that they could see his power, which had been great enough to calm the seas and great enough to overcome their fears. They could see this power held just as strong with the spiritual as it did with the physical. That Jesus teaching them and us about his power and his sufficiency, that he exercised it in mercy and compassion. And we can't miss that. For all the things we could look at on this passage, the one part we cannot miss is that Jesus looks at this man with compassion. He sees him for where he is and desires to heal him. Jesus has enough compassion to pursue him. Jesus has enough power to heal him. It testifies to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. It testifies to the reality that he was God. That he could command the spiritual world, the demons, noticed him, recognized him, and obeyed him. But it's the heart of Jesus that's on display here. I believe it's the heart of Jesus that he's trying to teach his disciples. That to look at this garrison man, this demon-possessed man, and to see him with different eyes. you kind of have to think that for the rest of their ministries, when they walked up to situations and scenarios, they'd be tempted to think, this is bad, but this isn't garrison bad. Garrison demon-possessed guy kind of bad. Like, we've seen worse. Jesus loved that guy. Jesus loves this guy. Jesus is going to love that extreme. Jesus is going to love this extreme. I think it taught him a lesson. I think it taught them a lesson about compassion and love and purpose. I think it taught them a lesson that causes us to wrestle with the question that the disciples must have. Why would we ever place limits on who is worth our investment? Why would we ever put boundaries on whom we would share Christ's love with or his compassion? I think that's a question we have to wrestle with. For these two men who've come into my office had written off John and Ryan. And if I'm honest with you, as much as I detest that moment, I must confess in my heart, in my life, I've been in situations and scenarios when I've written other people off. And it's evil. Every time I've done it, it's evil. I think we need to be confronted with the love of Jesus that has no limits, that has no boundaries, that even in these most extreme cases is sufficient 
Beloved, as we walk through a series in the book of Mark where we're called to fix our eyes on Jesus. Because that's where we're trying to land every week in the series. What does it mean to fix our eyes on Jesus? What do we need to look at? And this morning, the picture I want you thinking about, the idea that I, that the scripture kind of pulls out for us is to have an image of Jesus where his love knows no boundaries and has no limits. For if there's an extreme, we see it in the New Testament. We see Jesus love the demon-possessed man. We see Jesus love the woman caught in adultery. We see Jesus love the Pharisee who comes at night. We see Jesus love the blind man. We see him love the paralytic. These examples aren't just there for us to go, that's nice. That's cute. That's quaint. Wasn't he merciful? I think they're to test our boundaries. To recognize that Jesus has a bigger, broader love and compassion than we do. I think it's to push out on us a little. But friends, can I submit to you that one of the very reasons why we struggle to do that the most is because so often we've not rightly applied His love and His compassion to our lives well. Before you can apply it externally, before you can show it to others, you have to live it. You have to know. There's a reality when we come to the New Testament. There's a, a reading method. I can't forget what it's called. I just left my notes. Should have looked it up. I don't remember. That we all tend to read the New Testament with a hero ideology. We, we like to read the New Testament as if we're Jesus. I should heal broken people. Yeah, that's what I should do. Or we like to read it as one of the disciples. Jesus is teaching me to heal the broken people. This is amazing. And sometimes we miss the fact that you're the garrisoned demon-possessed man. We, we miss that. That sometimes in the story, we're actually supposed to read it and see if we're the really broken person who foundationally needs to have, who needs to be healed in ways deeper than we can fathom. And so when you get these stories and you ask yourself, Jesus couldn't really love me. And can we just be honest to say that we all have asked that question? Probably today. I mean, I think at some point in church we should be honest about that. Does Jesus really love me? Yes. And we could point at the cross. He loved you so much that he died for you. We could kind of make light of that. And he loved you so much that he, and we can kind of make light of that. We think running out and telling other people about Jesus is really good, but like we've never really soaked in and saturated that he actually did love you enough, personally, sufficiently, completely, in its fullness. I mean, there is a reason why in Philippians, Ephesians 3, Paul prays that you, together with all the saints, would come to an understanding of the height, depth, and width, and breadth of his love. Because we don't get it. 
And when we really, really do start to understand the height, the width, the breadth of his depth of his love, and together with all the saints, we go, you know what? He actually loves you. I don't, I think you need to apply it in this life, in this part of your life a little bit better, because it takes all of us. I think that's what starts to equip us to love externally better. I think when we think about this passage, Jesus is pushing his disciples out. And I think we need to be pushed out. But I think Jesus was teaching his disciples about love. I think he was teaching them about the extremes of his love. And I think we need to understand of the fullness and the depth of his love for us. And like a band-aid that sits on the shelf doing no good, we need to apply it to our lives. We need to recognize it. And we need to recognize it and live from it long before we'll ever be able to show others it. we finish this morning, I want to read three quotes from a, a book I read last year. Might be one of the best books I've ever written. Now hear me say this. I'm not advocating you read this instead of the Bible. I would way rather you read the Gospels slowly and methodically and apply them to your life to learn about Christ. Really. But as a supplement, Dane Ortland, son of Ray Ortland, wrote a book called Gentle and Lowly describes the heart of Jesus and the fact that Jesus is far more compassionate towards you than you've ever conceived of. I want to read three quotes he writes. Again, not Scripture, but I think they're helpful. Jesus can no more bring himself to stiff-arm you than the loving father of a crying newborn can bring himself to stiff-arm his dear child. Jesus' heart is drawn out to you. Nothing can chain his affections to heaven. His heart is too swollen with endearing love. He doesn't handle us roughly. He doesn't scowl and scold. He doesn't lash out the way many of our parents did. And all of this restraint on his part is not because he has a deluded view of our sinfulness. He knows our sinfulness far more deeply than we do. Indeed, we are aware of just the tip of the iceberg of our depravity. Even in our most searching moments of self-knowledge, his restraint simply flows from his tender heart for his people. Finally, the same Christ who wept at the tomb of Lazarus weeps with us in our lonely despair. The same one who reached out and Touched leopards puts his arms around us today when we feel misunderstood and sidelined. The Jesus who reached out and cleansed messy sinners reaches into our souls and answers our half-hearted plea for mercy with the mighty, invincible cleansing of one who cannot bear to do it otherwise. I think the reason why I treasured this book is because I recognize how often I paint a picture of Jesus in my own life or he doesn't love me. I think there are times when I don't allow the love of Jesus to penetrate every part of my life. This was helpful. If you want it, it's sitting here. The Gospels, 
paint Jesus over and over and over again as a compassionate, loving God who pursues sinners just like you and just like me and then sends us out to pursue sinners who are just like you and me. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful for the love your Son had for this demon-possessed man. It's not hard to see that his life was a wreck. It's not hard to see the extremes of his life. And Father, when I set his life next to mine, mine looks a lot prettier, a lot cleaner, a lot more sociable, a lot more acceptable. And yet, Father, my need was no less than his. So, Father, as we gather together this morning, may we see and understand Jesus, who has love and a compassion for all people. And that as we struggle with our own sin, may we understand the love and the compassion that you offer towards us. And that the power you use to exercise the demons from this man, you use in us all the time to shield us from the evil one. You use in us to remind us the fullness of your love. Jesus, even in this moment, could you show each of us Could you remind each of us of the fullness and the depth of the love that you've given us so that we might love more fully and completely and that as we look around the world and see broken people out of the compassion you've had on us that we might be like this garrison man who walked away and told of the mercy that Jesus had for him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.